I would ask that at this time you please open your Bibles to Acts chapter 18, verse 18. As you're turning there, I want to tell you a little bit about a trip that I took with my family back in 2020. You'll remember 2020. It was a strange time, pandemic time. And during uh, the spring of 2020, my family had a scheduled trip to go down to see my parents in Kentucky. And when we visited my parents, there came about lockdowns in New York City. And they were to such an extreme degree that uh, we were not sure if we would be permitted back into the city. We weren't sure if we could get through the bridges to get here to Long Island uh, because they were checking cars and they were testing people for fevers. And if you know anything about a car full of small children... At some point, everybody gets a fever. So uh, we were like, do we risk driving all the way back to New York only to get turned around and sent back down to Kentucky? And so we said, you know what? Instead, let's travel. Instead of going back to New York, let's go over to see my grandparents over in Kansas. And so we drove to see my grandparents in Kansas and spent some time with them and encouraged them. And it was great to let my kids have a little bit more time with them, knowing that uh, they're my grandparents. They're not going to be with us forever. We enjoyed that as well. And then the lockdowns got tighter. So we said, you know, Ashley's parents, their, ha- their house had burned down, and they were getting ready to move back into their, their house after remodeling. We wanted to be of help to them. So we said, why don't we just go crazy and just drive to Oregon? There's no lockdowns in, in Oregon. Let's drive over there. And so we went to Oregon. And still, the lockdowns persisted. So we went up to see my brother in Washington State. And so then the lockdowns persisted. And we we made our way around the country, 24 states, some of the biggest ones all over the coast. And we had a wonderful time. We had six kids, or five kids at the time, and a dog in our van, traveling all over the country, having no idea when we were, or if we were going to be able to get back. And we had such a wonderful time in the van until the last day. We were in Ohio making our way back from Ohio to New York. And that's when everyone was tired. Everyone, myself especially, was just ready to be home. We finally had the green light. We knew for sure we could get back. And then everybody just kind of melted down. That was the most miserable part of the entire journey. And I can tell you that if I were to write a book about that trip, that last leg would be concentrated into just a very small portion of that book, probably less than a paragraph. That's not the memorable moments. Those are not the highlights. Well, today when we come to the end of Acts chapter 18, uh, we see the conclusion of Paul's missionary journey. And when the camera is facing Paul, the movie is playing, as it were, in fast forward. We're given almost no information about the details of his life during this period. Even so, I believe that the closing of Acts chapter 18 is incredibly significant in providing a model for Christian life. So please follow along now as I read for us, starting in Acts chapter 18, verse 18. This is the word the Lord has for our church this morning. After this, Paul stayed many days longer. And then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria, and with him Priscilla and Aquila. At Centrea he had cut his hair, for he was under a vow. And they came to Ephesus, and he left them there. But he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. But when they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on the leave of them he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. When he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. After spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next throughout the region of Galatia and Phrygia, 
strengthening all the disciples. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the Scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the Scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. Let's pray. Our Father God in heaven, today as we come to the Scripture, we desire to do the same thing that Apollos was doing to show that the Christ is Jesus. He is the Messiah, the Lord of all. And Lord, I pray that if there is anyone in the room who has not yet bowed their knee to Jesus in full faith and belief, that they would do so today, that He would be their Savior. We praise You, Lord, that even today is the day of salvation. We also thank You, Lord, that this text is going to reveal to us aspects of how we as believers are called to walk in faithfulness before the face of God. We pray that You would help me today to present faithfully, accurately, and clearly. And we also ask, Lord, for the reception of the Word, that there would be ears to hear and hands to do what you have called us to. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Our mode of study today is going to be very simple. What we're going to do is just walk through the text one line at a time, precept upon precept, like a running commentary. And as we do, I'm going to draw your attention to five powerful and, I believe, foundational truths that are highlighted in this chapter. These are five actions that every single Christian will have the opportunity to live out in real time. And if we were to imitate Paul and the others in this passage as they imitated Christ, then I believe our church and our personal lives would look radically different. Just so you know what is coming down the pike, here are the five principles for Christian living that I'm going to point out today. Number one, maintaining frustrating ministry. Number two, making future plans. Number three, modeling faithful consistency. Number four, meekly correcting false doctrine. And number five, masterfully receiving correction. Let's walk through this passage together line by line, starting in verse 18. It says, after this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria and with him Priscilla and Aquila. We have immediately arrived at the very first of the principles that I want you to see today in the text, and that is maintaining frustrating ministry. How do you continue serving the Lord when you are burnt out? How do you remain faithful in your calling when you feel like you have given everything you've got and you just don't seem to have the energy or the passion that you used to? Last week, Jonathan did a great job showing us how Paul was burnt out. He was exhausted. He was fearful. He was frustrated with the constant failures of the Jewish community to receive the gospel. He had been mistreated and imprisoned and beaten and hunted by the very same people that he loved so much that he poured out his life to show them the life-saving message of the gospel. There's only ever been one perfect missionary, and that's Jesus Christ. Paul was not perfect, and Paul was discouraged. He was burnt out. He was ready to quit. But Jonathan told us last week, accurately so, that the Lord stood by Paul. 
Remember that Jesus came to him in a vision and told him, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you. No one will attack you to harm you, for I have many people who are in this city. The key words of that phrase is, I am with you. In 2018, the Nine Marks Journal, which is a journal for pastors, did an entire issue on the topic of pastoral burnout. The entire journal was filled with writings from pastors who wrote articles about how they had handled burnout in their own lives and ministries. The most powerful of those articles, in my opinion, was written by my friend and my mentor, Ed Moore. It is entitled, I was burnt out, but I stayed in. It's a raw and honest explanation of some of the most turbulent times in the history of the church that occurred back in 2002, where he serves. Now, I want to share with you a couple of extended snippets from the conclusion of that article, but if you want to read the whole thing, I will make sure that Francesco has that link and he'll send it out to you in our Thursday email updates. Ed writes regarding burnout, so what was the secret of my survival? Because I knew the Word, the incarnate Word, Jesus Christ. That's the bottom line answer as to how the season of burnout was replaced with joy and a renewed zeal to press on. I cannot give you an answer as to how our church turned the corner and returned to being a place of harmony and love. For purposes of this article, the simple answer is as to how I personally survived is Jesus Christ himself. I was like Jeremiah, fully prepared to throw in the towel. If I say I will not mention him or speak any more in his name, there is in my heart, as it were, a burning fire shut up in my bones, and I am weary with holding it in, and I cannot. That's Jeremiah 29. I wanted to quit, but the Lord wouldn't allow it. If it was up to me, I would have been gone, long gone. So I don't wish to present myself as an example of perseverance in the midst of pastoral struggles. Truth be told, I am the exact opposite. In part, the Lord stood with me using a great deal of human support. My elders, my family, a host of wonderful people in the church uh, remained uh, courageous and loyal. For their support, I remain very thankful. But ultimately, my survival was a matter of Jesus himself being my portion, my guide, my comfort, and my rock while all the world around me was crumbling. As I often sat alone in tears, physically trembling, unable to sleep, and overcome with worry, it was in those dark hours that Christ upheld me and sustained me to press on. End quote, and well said. There's much more to that article. I highly encourage you to read it. But I know that it's important for us to understand this is not just a pastoral problem. Last week we saw that Paul was burnt out, but the Lord stood by him. And that is why those three little words in verse 18 are so sweet and precious and encouraging. Those three little words, many days longer. He remained with them many days longer. After wanting to throw in the towel, he remained with them many days longer. He stayed in the ministry even when he was ready to quit because the Lord stood by him and strengthened him and equipped him and sustained him. Christian, you have a ministry, whether you view it as such or not. It's different than Paul's ministry. It's different than Ed's ministry. It's different than my ministry. It's not like anyone else's. But you are called to serve the Lord in your place. There are days when you feel like throwing in the towel. You won't want to serve in that capacity that the Lord has given you to minister to the church. You won't feel like being a gospel minister at your job. You don't desire to do devotion with your kids around the, the dinner table. You just get tired, and you're worn out, and you're ready to quit. Well, how do you face that? 
Do you know what I find incredibly ridiculous? Movies. They're ridiculous. <laughs> In movies, they do strange and stupid things. For example, when somebody is near a cliff and they start to fall off, they are then dangling by the strength of nothing more than their fingertips. I don't know if you've ever tried to hold on to something with your fingertips. You can't hang on very long. But what inevitably happens is somebody from some distance away yells to them and says something incredibly ridiculous. Hang on! That's right! The person who's dangling from the cliff never says to themselves, Wow, hang on. What an idea. I'm so glad you mentioned this because I never would have possibly come up with this concept on my own. Hang on. Just, just keep your fingers locked on. Wow, what a novel concept. No, nobody says that. But you know what happens is they are told, hang on, and it's ridiculous because nobody can do any better than they would already be doing to try to save their lives. That's not going to help them hang on. Those words, just hang in there. How much is that going to actually assist someone? Now, here's what's really ridiculous. I bet if I saw somebody falling off a cliff, I'd probably say the same thing. I'd probably tell them, hang on. But those words don't help. What helps is when somebody actually gets there and they reach down and grab the arm of that person and they hold onto that person and they drag them with all of their strength back up onto the cliff. Paul hung on, not because God just said to him, hang in there, buddy, you can do it. It's because Jesus was there holding his arm, strengthening him, making sure that he did not fall. He says, I am with you, don't be afraid. Now, if we had a lot of time, we could trace this through the Bible, but it is everywhere. You see it all over the place that when God tells people, don't be afraid, he gives them a reason, and the reason is, because I am with you. Joshua, do not be afraid, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. He tells everybody when he tells them, don't be afraid, the reason is, because I'm with you. You see, sometimes we get tired our fingers begin to wobble, our strength begins to dissipate, and the reason that we feel like giving up is because we stop noticing that God himself is with us. Jesus himself is strengthening us. He is upholding us. The Spirit of God indwells us and is giving us the power to do whatever God calls us to. He doesn't just give you a mission. He walks with you in that mission. He gives you the power to fulfill that mission. Isn't it incredible that what God has done has given us opportunity to serve Him in ways that He ultimately receives all the glory because He's the one who is the one carrying us through them. If you are able to succeed in ministry, it's only because the Lord was holding you fast and never going to let you go. Another thing I want you to see here that's amazing is the single word in verse 18, brothers. Brothers. When Paul left, there were brothers in Corinth. There was a church in Corinth. The people who had previously completely rejected him were beginning to come to Christ. We don't know how large the church was at this time, but eventually this becomes one of the capitals of the church in the world. His obedience was the vessel for God's work to thrive in Corinth. God said, don't stop. I've got many people in this city. And his faithfulness resulted in fruitfulness because God did have people in that city and the ministry of Paul's preaching drew them into the kingdom. Now, you might not see fruit in your ministry. 
That might be part of the reason why you are so tired of living like a Christian at your job or at your home. But carry on, because God is going to do the work. He will bring the increase. Let's continue to make our way through the text together. The conclusion of verse 18 tells us that at Centrea he had cut his hair, for he was under a vow. Now, we don't know the nature of this vow. All we know is that there was a historic Jewish custom, probably associated with the Nazarite vow, that they would determine a period of time in which they would not cut their hair. They would make a commitment to obey God in a particular way for a particular season. So all we know for sure is that Paul did not cut his hair during that year and a half period that he was at Corinth. So if anyone ever asks me why my hair is the length that it is, I just tell them, I took a vow. (laughs) That's a joke. (laughs) A bad joke. It was time at this point to visit the barber. So on his way out of Corinth at the port city of Centrea, he simply goes and gets a chop. And then verse 19, they came to Ephesus, and he left there, but he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. Now here, once again, we see the party separating. Paul left Priscilla and Aquila in Ephesus, and he began to do solo ministry, ministering once again as he made his way back towards his sending church in Antioch. In verse 20, when they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills, and he set sail from Ephesus. Notice that he had washed his hands of the ministry to the Jews back in Corinth. Now in Ephesus, it is the Jewish community that is asking him to stay. Stick with us. We want to hear what you have to say, Paul. But this brings us now to our second main point of the morning, making future plans. Notice that Paul did not remain in Ephesus very long. However, He loved the believers there, and he had a desire to return and to teach them. But Paul did not make any promises to them. He did not swear by anything, not by heaven or earth or his mother's grave, that he's going to make it back to preach the gospel to them. He just said, if the Lord wills. I will come back to you if it is the will of God. Now, why does Paul say this? Why does he include if God wills? Well, the book of James helps us to understand this with a bit more clarity In James chapter 4, verses 13 through 16. Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. James teaches us that we need to ensure that the way we think about and the way that we speak about our plans is always filtered through the reality that it will only come to pass if the Lord wills. Anything less than that, James refers to as evil boasting. One of the most common poems that is taught and memorized in high schools, and let's face it, they don't learn poetry in high school anymore for the most part, in college literature classes, is the poem Invictus by William Henley. The closing stanza of that poem says, It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishment the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. That's a pretty good summarization of the mantra of our generation. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. But that's nothing new. That's what James was getting on to that church about. You are not the master of your fate. Now, should you make plans? Yes, James even says that you should say, if the Lord wills, I will go to this and that place. 
Yes, you should make plans. Absolutely you should. You should do your best to have a plan for every aspect of your life, but you should do so with the full realization that God is the ultimate, ultimately the only one who guides your steps and will permit you to achieve any of those goals that you have set. One of the people in the church here at, uh, in our congregation that uh, I think is most encouraging to me personally is Shao Han. Now, Shao Han has grown an incredible amount since coming to the Lord uh, just recently, and he has become such a strong believer, growing in so many ways. Uh, recently, he was invited to a thing at my house, and he was texting with Ashley about uh, something about uh, the meal that we were going to have and whether or not he was going to be there. And he said something to the extent of, I will be there, LW. And Ashley's like, LW? What does LW mean? What does LW mean? And he said, it means Lord willing. He has this thing down so well already that he's got it abbreviated. <laughs> That's incredible. Praise God for Shao Han. And I think, I think he learned that from Larry Langley. I, I want to encourage you to make that little phrase a common part of your vernacular. Make that part of your regular way of speech. Train yourself to think of everything you do in light of God's hand at work. When you're making your future plans, make them with God's invisible hand of providence in mind. I desire to do this, I plan to do this, but I will do this if the Lord wills. Paul says, I'll come back to you if the Lord wills. Let's continue strolling through the text in Acts chapter 18, now in verse 22. When he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. After spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Think about how much is crammed into those two tiny little verses. When it says that Paul went up, it's speaking about going to the city of Jerusalem. Whenever you see that he went up in the Scripture, when they're in the region of Caesarea, it's speaking about going to the city of Jerusalem. He goes there to the original capital of the church, Jerusalem, the city where the apostles were still remaining at this time, and he goes there and does something, but we have no idea what happens. It just tells us that he went there, and then he leaves. Well, who did he talk to? Did he preach at any of the churches? Did he have any late-night theological discussions with the other apostles? Did he become best friends with Peter? We don't have any idea what happened here. Then he makes his way back to his home church in Antioch, and we know nothing of what he did there except that he, quote, spent some time there. That's all we know. That is as vague as Luke ever gets. This is the official end of Paul's second missionary journey, and we have no idea what was going on in the church that sent him. We don't know if the church in Antioch was doing well or if, it, if when Paul returned, he returned to great controversy. We don't, know any, we don't have any idea how he spent his time. We don't know what he did. And then Luke actually jumps a little bit into the third missionary journey, speaking of how he went through a couple of those regions that he had previously gone to, strengthening the disciples. But unlike those two first missionary journeys, we have almost no information about the multiple stops that he made. All we know is that he went back to strengthen them. This brings us to our third point, modeling faithful consistency. This brings us to the part of the life of Paul that we have the least information about. If you trace everything that he ever did from the beginning of his salvation moving forward, this is probably the period of time that we have the least data about. Although he continued in ministry, there's no details provided as to what he did. Likewise, 
Some parts of your life are going to be made up of consistent ministry that will result in eternal good, but it's not going to be flashy. It's not going to be significant by the world's standards. It will be significant, but it won't be the kind of significance that people will contemplate until they're thinking about how to speak of you at your funeral. If you read the diary of journals from the great saints of the past, there are two common things that you will notice. First, you will notice the incredible consistency of those great saints and how they live their life coram Deo, before the face of God. They recognize that each and every day belongs to the Lord and that they should have given their entire day to Him. So as they write back over what they did, they do so through the lens of how it is that the Lord worked in their life and how they were able to do things for the Lord Himself. The second thing that you'll notice as you read through those journals, though, is just how normal and boring most of their days were. Most of the time, they weren't doing something that would be written about in the history books. They may have spent the day reading or traveling or instructing their children or doing laundry. Uh, It's interesting, um, in India, uh, William Carey was the first missionary to India, in the modern era at least. He is the person we call the father of modern missions. And in India, there is a stamp that was issued in the 70s and it went on until the 90s, a stamp of him... And they refer to him not as a great missionary, but of the father of Indian botany. Why? Because one of the things he did while he was there was he wrote about what plants were edible and what plants were not edible in the region he was at in India. That's pretty boring. That didn't make it into the history books. Most of the things we know about William Carey are the the fantastic aspects of his ministry. Brothers and sisters, it can be really easy to get excited about things that we perceive to be big and the things that we perceive to have eternal significance. Or it's also possible that we can only view certain aspects of ministry to be important, and we look at all the other ones as worthless. Maybe your normal day, you, you look at it and you think you're not really accomplishing anything for the Lord. I, don't, I want to encourage you, be faithful in the small things. Be consistent in living for Christ faithfully. It is never in vain, and it is never doing nothing. I am so serious about it that I'm using an intentional double negative. It is never doing nothing. At your retirement party, wouldn't it be wonderful if someone were to speak to you and say, listen, I've watched you for years. I watched the way that you're honest in your dealings. I have watched the way that you are caring for people who are around you. I have watched the way that you operate with integrity And what if that led to a gospel conversation? Wouldn't that be great? Your daily grind is a place where your life is on display like a light in a dark room. And every day your co-workers are getting a little sermon from you about what it means to live for Christ. In particular, I want to focus in on perhaps the most overlooked ministry, and that is parenting. Moms and dads, especially moms, I want you to hold on to this tightly. Be faithful in the little things, even when it doesn't seem like anything is happening. Be consistent in training up your child in the Lord, even when it doesn't feel like anything is changing. As I once heard somebody say, your children are not a distraction from your ministry. They are your ministry. Most likely, your children will be the most lasting and powerful legacy of your ministry on earth. Be faithful in the things that seem small to you, because you are not 
going to look back over your life and think of them as small in the future. They're not small to the people who are around you. I'm no longer surprised when I go to funerals and I listen to the people who speak. I'm not surprised any longer at the things that they bring up. You know, that the stuff that they talk about is usually not the same stuff that makes it to the obituary. They don't talk about the number of books that they wrote. They don't talk about the things that the world views as significant. They don't talk about their bank account. They don't talk about their retirement plan. They don't talk about how excellent they were at their jobs. They go in and they speak of the deceased person not in terms of accomplishments. They speak of the long-term impact that that deceased person's daily and consistent love and care and gospel-centered life had on them. There are no insignificant days. There is no such thing as a small ministry. Model faithful consistency, even when it seems mundane. At this point, we arrive at a scene change in the book of Acts. Now that Paul's second ministry uh, missionary journey has drawn to a close, the camera is going to shift away from Paul for the first and literally the only time uh, since the beginning of his ministry in uh, chapter 13. At this point, it shifts and looks at Priscilla, Aquila, and Apollos. As we learned about last Sunday, Aquila and Priscilla were Jews that had been kicked out of Rome by the emperor Claudius when he expelled all of the Jewish people from the capital region. Anti-Semitism is not a new thing. It's been around a long time. And they were likely very wealthy, and they even went by their Roman names. For example, Aquila, which is probably pronounced Aquila, uh, Aquila was the word eagle in Latin, and the eagle was the banner of the Roman army. Interestingly, he was a tent maker, and that's probably the people, those were his best customers, the army folks. They are probably the ones who came and purchased the majority of his tents. We also know that they were excellent at business, and we know that they were wealthy and influential people, but much more importantly, Priscilla and Aquila were faithful believers. Today, we are introduced to a new character in the narrative. His name is Apollos. And we learn a little bit about his short biography in verses 24 and following when it says, Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, that's in northern Africa, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. Verse 28 includes... The fact that he was an incredibly gifted orator when it says he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. It was powerful, his speech. Apollos was one of the most significant evangelists in the early church. It is likely that he was second only to Paul in terms of his effectual reach with the gospel. We mainly find him ministering in the cities of Ephesus and Corinth, two powerhouses of the early church, but... We also find in the book of Titus that he was traveling around the region as well, and in that point, he was in at the island of Crete. Now, Paul corrected the Corinthian church for dividing over who they viewed as their leader, Paul or Apollos, although Paul was the one who came there first, and he's the one who saw the first converts and shared the gospel with them in that city. Apollos came afterward. We see him go there at the end of this chapter, and he had an incredibly fruitful ministry with many converts. Apollos was also likely the much more eloquent speaker of the two, leading some to complain about Paul's lack of on-the-spot rhetoric and oratory skills. We see that in the book of 1 and 2 Corinthians. But we also see that 
Apollos is noted as always being excellent at presenting biblical arguments from the Old Testament regarding the person and work of Jesus. This is one of the reasons that Martin Luther and several other historical theologians believe that it's possible and maybe even likely that Apollos is the one who wrote the book of Hebrews. That's an argument that I am somewhat inclined to believe, although we don't know for sure. We see the gospel-centered response to Paul to the problematic comparisons that are made between him and Apollos in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 4-9. through 9. Here he corrects the people by saying, For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. Both of these men were powerhouses of evangelism, but only because God grew the seeds. They were only fruitful because God brought about the fruit. But in our text today, we see that there was a problem with Apollos' teaching early on. He was missing a piece of the gospel. Look at our text, verse 26. It says, He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. Now, we don't know exactly the details of what his message was missing, but it is clear that there was a gospel issue at stake. Although he had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and he was fervent in spirit, and he was a powerful speaker, and he taught, quote, accurately the things uh, about Jesus, he was missing a piece of the puzzle. What is mentioned here is that he was, mentioned, he was missing a piece about baptism. Now, we're going to talk much more about this next week. We're going to see how Paul comes into Ephesus and corrects the teaching that they have there. But for today, I just want to draw two final application points from the interaction that occurred between Apollos and Aquila and Priscilla. So point number four, meekly correcting false doctrine. I want you to see three things about how Priscilla and Aquila dealt with this issue. First, it says that they, quote, heard the problem. By saying they, it indicates that both of them were astute enough theologians to catch that there were doctrinal problems in Apollos' teaching. These two were not pastors. They were not missionaries. They were not seminary trained. They were just faithful Christians who knew the gospel well enough to recognize a problem. Every single member of this church should be growing in their attentiveness and awareness of false teaching. One of the things that has harmed the church in America more than anything else is that there are many true believers, faithful brothers and sisters in Christ, who are following the teachings of the leaders that they are listening to, and they are doing so to their own detriment because they have no discernment. They are not listening carefully. They are not checking to make sure that what they are hearing is in sync with the Word of God. If people were discerning, almost every preacher on television would immediately be canceled. Listen for what people are saying and grow in discernment concerning gospel truth and error. Secondly, I want you to notice how Priscilla and Aquila graciously sought to help Apollos. It says that they took him aside. They didn't publicly malign him. They didn't write some angry blog post about him. They didn't 
follow him around on social media and make light of his capabilities in the scripture, they seemed to believe that he truly was a brother in Christ, and they desired to help him. Their heart was committed to the purity of the gospel message, so they couldn't remain silent, but their heart was also kind enough that they didn't seek to debate or argue or publicly humiliate him. They wanted to help him. There are often going to be people who get some things wrong. There are going to be people who have some of the details backwards. And what you can do for them is to lovingly pull them aside and say, can I just show you from the Word of God why I think you've got a little piece here mixed up? And then come reason together, like we see with Priscilla and Aquila going to Apollos. The third thing I want you to see here is that it says they explained to him the way of God more accurately. Now, imagine that. This guy is an incredible communicator. This guy walks into a room. He's the kind of guy that everybody turns and looks at. He's the kind of guy that commands attention. He's the kind of guy that can speak about anything. He's probably the kind of guy who can argue something he knows is wrong and convince you that he's right. He's brilliant. Even so, they spoke to him. My guess is Priscilla and Aquila were probably somewhat intimidated to go to somebody like this and communicate with him. He was a brilliant speaker, but regardless of their feelings about it, they showed him truth. They knew the gospel like the back of their hand, and they understood that there was something that he didn't know, and this brother in Christ needed to know. So it's important to understand it is a prideful thing not to correct someone. It is an arrogant thing not to speak in love to them about how they are getting a piece wrong. It is a prideful thing to know that they are in error, but you care more about your own reputation or your own comfort than you do about going to somebody and speaking to them about gospel fidelity or how to preach the word accurately. The fact that these two faithful believers confronted Apollos graciously reveals that they loved God and they loved Apollos more than they loved their own comfort zone or soapbox. They didn't do this to be seen, and they also did not do this because they felt good about it. They did it because they loved the Lord and they loved Apollos. And so they come to him and they speak to him graciously about the truth. Which leads us now to our final point of the morning. This is the one that most of us probably need more than the last, and that is masterfully receiving correction. It says in verse 27, And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers, which would include Priscilla and Aquila there in the city, encouraged him and wrote to the disciples and welcomed him. The fact that Apollos was sent to Corinth with a commendation indicates that he had fully adopted the correction that was given to him by Priscilla and Aquila. Do you think that they would have sent him on all the way to the city they just left to speak to the Christians they just departed from if they thought his missions, uh, if his um, word and his message was incorrect? If Apollos had not received correction, you can certainly believe that Paul would have written differently about him in 1 Corinthians and in Titus. But he always commends him as a true brother who teaches the true gospel. He received correction, and for it he was commended to go preach in the city that Paul and Priscilla and Aquila had just left. Now, I know for a fact that I am wrong about some things doctrinally and theologically. I am convinced that that is true. I don't know what they are. If I knew what they are, I wouldn't think that way. I wouldn't believe them. But I'm convinced that there are probably things that are incorrect. 
And I hope that as we make our way through the Word, that the Lord corrects my thinking. There are some times when I will come here and I will preach to you and I will say, I used to think this, but the Lord has trained me and taught me from the Word. The Scripture has convinced me that this that I used to believe is wrong, and now I want to share with you what I believe to be true. I believe that I've got all the major doctrines in a row. Don't get scared about that. But I will say, every one of us, every one of us, if we are humble, will acknowledge that when we get to heaven, we are going to go, huh, man, I missed that one. At some point, we're going to get to heaven, and everybody is going to have to apologize for the way that they treated others regarding some of these doctrines somewhere. We get things wrong. As we walk together towards heaven, we are all going to grow in our understanding of the gospel and in our ability to preach it to others. If someone ever comes to you and they say, you know, I heard you speaking about something, I heard you say something, I just don't think that's quite right. Your immediate response should be to listen. Your immediate response should be to reason together. You're, you should hear them out. Look to the Word of God. Say, what does the Bible say about it? And then, if you're not convinced and the Scripture is not clear to you, Speak to those who have the ability to give you good counsel in that area. All of these are ways that you can be humble. I want you to see verse 28 again. I want you to close to to see how this results in the good of the kingdom. It says in verse 28, For he, Apollos, powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the Scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. Which Jews is Luke referring to here that he is speaking to? It's the exact same group of Jews that Paul said that he would no longer preach to. Paul said, I'm done with those people. I am out. Your blood be on your own heads, which is a pretty intense thing to say. And then he seemingly never speaks to them again. As far as we can tell, Paul never again preached the gospel to that group of people. But they were not left alone. His ministry in Corinth was to a Gentile audience, but it is likely that God also had a people in that city from the Jewish community that he planned to save. And it was Apollos who was raised up for that very mission. That's why when you get to the book of 1st and 2nd Corinthians, it appears that there is a large contingency not only of Gentile believers, but of Jewish believers also. They did not come in through the ministry of Paul. They came in predominantly through the ministry of Apollos. Praise God for that. It was Apollos' mission that he was raised up for. And there he went to proclaim the good news, and he did so accurately because he was brought into a small corner by a couple of faithful believers who said, listen, Apollos, you've got a lot of stuff right here, but I think you're missing a small piece. Let me share with you about that. Now, when we get back here next week, I'll share with you more of the details about what he was missing. But for now, I want to just remind you what we consider today. Brothers and sisters, we are called to maintain frustrating ministry by leaning on Christ. We are called to make future plans in light of God's providence. We are called to model faithful consistency in the seemingly small things. We are called to meekly correct false doctrine with a kind and smiling heart. And we are called to masterfully receive correction and do so with humility. Let's pray. Our God and Father in heaven, we thank you that you are the God of all things. The things that we view to be big things and the things we view to be small things. We thank you, Lord, that in all of our working and all of our striving, that you are always upholding us, that you are always the one providentially outworking through us. You are the one who allows us to be fruitful. You are the one 
that we are striving to have good doctrine for and about, and you are the one that we preach and proclaim. Help us to do it accurately. Father God, again, we pray that we would be people of the word that stand in truth and that can proclaim the good news to people with accuracy. We pray that in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.